Welcome to All Places Together. Here we believe that our lives are connected to one another and rooted in God's expansive and inclusive love for diverse creation. I'm Colleen Montgomery, pastor of All Places Together and your podcast host. Wherever you are, whoever you are, however you are, take a deep breath. I've got a question for you. What's a queer question? Our exploration of questions continues today with another interview. Our guest this episode will share with us the power that questions have to help us get to know ourselves and to truly live into the amazingness that God has instilled in each of us. She affirms that we are each called, claimed, and beloved of God. And I hope that today's conversation helps you understand yourself on a deeper level. Today, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Crystal Hall to the All Places Together podcast. Dr. Crystal Hall uses she, her pronouns and is a certified life coach who coaches women as they create life-giving ministries. She has a PhD in biblical studies from Union Theological Seminary in New York, New York. Crystal especially focuses on the issues of women and femmes' intersectionality, meaning that she brings an understanding of how sexism intersects with those other types of oppression, like racism, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia. Crystal also taught Bible at the United Lutheran Seminary. She identifies as bi and is engaged to Jorge. They live together in Philadelphia, and in her free time, she enjoys hiking, art museums, and gathering with friends around a meal. Crystal is also my coach, and that makes this extra exciting. So welcome to All Places Together, Crystal. We're so glad you're here. Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here. So I imagine that for a lot of people, when they hear the word coach, they automatically like first think of sports coaches. Uh, So to begin our conversation today, for someone who has never heard of or never had a life coach or a professional coach, um, could you share with us like what's similar and different between what a sports coach does and what you do? Absolutely. So athletes hire coaches to be able to see things outside of themselves that they're not able to see in what they do. So for example, if you're working on your free throw, There are so many things that you can be physically aware of, but you need somebody outside of your physical body in order to see what's going on with your form, with your feet or your hands or your shoulders or whatever it is that you have that physical awareness, but it's always limited and you need to be able to have people outside of you that can see and point out what you're doing. And it's so normal. It's totally normalized and expected that you hire an expert like a coach as an athlete. Like no one is going to the Olympics without their coach. It People would be yeah. concerned if you were trying to go to the Olympics without a whole team of professionals surrounding you to provide you with that expert support. But when it comes to mental and emotional and spiritual health, there's so much stigma around asking for and seeking support because people have these questions of, well, if I seek the support of a coach, like people are going to think there's something wrong with me or or that I couldn't figure it out for myself or that people will internalize thinking there's something wrong with them versus of course you seek the support of an expert because that's what people do because there's so much that you can do to be self-aware, but of course there's going to be things that you can't see. Of course, you're going to have blind spots. Of course, you need the expertise of someone outside of yourself to show you how to do things that you've never done before, not because there's anything wrong with you, but because you're always in the process of learning new skills. And so doing this work specifically with coaching might be around a specific goal Like you might be in discernment, you might be transitioning from one call to another, you might be bringing a big project into the world, but you can also think of it as mental hygiene. You can think of it as just like you brush your teeth every day that you also get coached once a week, because just like you need to clean your teeth, like you also need to clean out your brain, that this is just part of the work that you do to support yourself. Just like you go to your PCP, of course, you also go to a coach. 
this is just part of the work that you do to care for yourself. I think those are such helpful metaphors. And like what comes to mind when you're saying that um, in the professional world, in many professions, having to do continuing education is just standard practice. Um, I know it is like for me as a pastor, like my dad is an eye doctor. So like I grew up with him, you know, having to go to conferences and it was never a judgment of like, oh, you're a bad eye doctor. You need continuing education. It's no, like the field continues to advance and like you need to learn to be able to keep up with things and develop skills. And I think coaching is just like a really personalized, like focused continuing education experience where like you're learning about yourself and what you do and how you do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so many of the women that I work with are using their continuing education dollars for coaching because they see it as exactly that, or they're using some combination of their their own funds and professional education because it is exactly that, that there's there's so much that's always evolving, whether it's in your personal life or your professional life. And so, of course, you want that ongoing support of people outside of yourself to show you the things that you can't see yourself. Not because there's anything wrong with you, but because work is always continuous and communal. And so, of course, you want the support of other people to do that. Yeah, of course. There's always things that we can't see that we're doing and bringing attention to that can really make a huge difference. So I think another important distinction to make is between therapy, spiritual direction, and coaching. Each of these are really useful and they have a lot of similarities, but they are also, I think, each distinct practices as well. So from your perspective, how does coaching differ from these two practices? Like what makes coaching unique? Yeah, it would be really interesting to draw the Venn diagram across these different modalities. Oh, yeah. This is when it's like you're a teacher and having a whiteboard would be great. I know. I know exactly. But, you know, for the purposes of podcasting, we'll have to draw the visual. We'll have to draw the Venn diagram with our words. Yes. But as I'm like gesturing to, to make large circles, which obviously our listeners can't see. But so I think one of the distinctions here, er, let me try that again. So one of the Again, the metaphors I think is really useful in drawing out some of these distinctions between, say, coaching and spiritual direction or coaching and therapy is that they're all healing modalities in the sense that they are all practices that are coming up alongside of people to be supportive of an individual in some way. And the way they go about that is different in the same way that, say, doctors specialize in different parts of the body. So for example, you might have your your general practitioner, your PCP that you go to uh, for, you know, just regular preventative things versus going to a GI doctor for specific, you know, intestinal issues or going to a cardiologist for particular heart issues. And so like in the same way that different doctors specialize in different physical parts of the body, Therapists, coaches, spiritual directors specialize in different forms of that supporting profession or those healing professions. And so in the same way that there's similarities, say, between what a GI doctor does and what a cardiologist does, it's all working within medicine. Obviously, they're dealing also with very different tools, very different kinds of procedures and protocols. So I, one of the ways I like to distinguish, say, between therapy and coaching is that therapy tends to focus on the past. Therapy tends to focus on processing what happened in your childhood versus coaching, which really focuses more on the present to the future, understanding where you are now and where you want to go. Another, I think, important caveat here is that if you have a clinical diagnosis, say major depression or PTSD or an eating disorder, that therapy is definitely more appropriate than coaching. Coaching can be complementary to working in therapy if you have a major diagnosis, but if you are having any kind of trouble in your day-to-day functioning, if you're not stable, 
then therapy is definitely the way to go. Coaching is really when assuming that you are in a solid place, um, which isn't to say that you don't have big feelings, which isn't to say that you don't process things. Um, but coaching is a is a different kind of modality in that you're not dealing with, say, what what we would call big T trauma. Um, you know, you're not dealing with, for example, when we're talking about big T trauma, we're talking about uh, the abuse in a physical or emotional sense. We're talking about um, a death that you're having difficulty processing. Those sorts of things are more appropriate for therapy if they're interfering with your daily functioning versus, say, spiritual direction, where, again, there's some overlaps, but spiritual direction focuses, I think, much more explicitly on particular practices, say, around prayer or centering prayer or spiritual practices where coaching is using different kinds of tools. There's a lot of intersections between the kind of coaching I do and what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really focusing on how your thoughts are creating your feelings, which are then driving your actions. And so the the tools of spiritual direction are, are different than, say, the tools of coaching. But again, there's a lot of similarities in some ways in that you're you're focusing on getting yourself grounded, getting yourself centered and open and curious to to the way that the spirit is moving through your life. And so certainly some parallels but also some significant differences as well. I think those are such helpful distinctions especially if people are considering either seeking out therapy spiritual directing spiritual direction or coaching to try to understand like as you're going in like what that uh, relationship is going to look like with the person who's your therapist your coach or your director so in what you were sharing there too you started to get into like what type of coaching you do and so as one sort of last grounding and background question uh, I was wondering if you could share with us what is your basic model of coaching? Like, what kind of basic assumptions do you work with so we can kind of understand your framework? Yeah. So, I, as a coach, am working with the assumption that I am never going to know what's best for you because you are the expert in your own experience. So I'm not here to provide you with advice. I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I'm here as your coach to create a space in which you come to your own best answer. You come home to yourself. You step into your power and claim your authority because that is what God is calling you to do in your life. And so I create the space to midwife that. But I'm also working under the assumption that you always know what that means for you and that there's no way that I can know as your coach what's going to be best for you. And as a specifically as a life coach, I work specifically with women in ministry, so women who are pastors, deacons, lay administrators, but we don't just coach on ministry. Um, so as a life coach, like I coach on all aspects of people's lives, nothing is off the table. I coach on people's relationships with their spouses or with their kiddos or about body image or building a gym habit. Like these are all things that I've coached on with women in ministry because I'm, I'm treating the whole person. I'm not just looking specifically at that argument that you had with your office administrator about why the bulletin was edited in a certain way. But we're also looking at how that is connected to similar kinds of patterns, say, in your relationship with your spouse or your relationship with a friend of yours, because the way that we do one thing is the way that we do everything. And so all of those mental habits and patterns manifest themselves in different parts of your life. And so there's awareness to be built about how those patterns show up everywhere. <laughs> Because the way the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. I think one thing that I just love from your philosophy and perspective on this is that celebrating that your client is the expert in her own or their own life. Um, I know I was having a conversation just last night with 
one of the sorority women, I'm a sorority advisor in my volunteer life and having a conversation with one of the women and she was sharing how she feels like she has like all of this imposter syndrome. And it's like, but like, no, like, you know, this, you have learned this. And like, to a certain extent, we all feel this, but like, you are the expert who is here, you know, to guide the chapter on this particular, you know, facet of our shared life as as sorority members. And so just that affirmation, I think that perhaps women in particular of all ages and stages of life of like claiming that authority of like, I know myself or I'm getting to know myself and like I am the expert. And to have someone be able to like say that and celebrate that is so powerful. Absolutely. I mean, a related issue that is just sparking from some of what you're describing is the ways in which women are socialized around authority, because women and people, basically everybody who's not white, cishet men, were conditioned to see people in authority as white, cishet, wealthy men. Like that those are the people we see in pulpits. Those are the people we see in elected office. Those are the people we primarily see in popular media. I mean, that is what is defined in our socialization as authority, that these are the experts. These are the people that know what to do and are going to tell us what to do and that we should follow them. And if we question them then there's something wrong, not with them, but with us. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of the work in coaching, especially for women, is to notice those forms of socialization. Huh, I'm noticing that I don't think I'm an expert on my own life. I'm noticing that I'm having trouble claiming my authority and normalizing that experience to say, of course, this is, of course, you have imposter syndrome. You were socialized as a woman under patriarchy, of course. And so normalizing that experience, you didn't consent to the socialization, but it's something that you grew up in. And so then deciding, okay, once you notice it, is this something that I want to choose for myself? Or do I want to decide on purpose, this is how I want to show up to claim that authority or that expertise, knowing what I know now about the way I've been conditioned to think. Right. Yes. We all need that. Yes. So let's dig in then on how questions function in your practice of a coach. So you've already kind of started to get into this about the questions that you ask or maybe the questions that your clients come with. Um, So I wonder how have you seen your clients make breakthroughs because of a powerful question? Yeah. So many of the women that I work with feel simultaneously overwhelmed that there's so much coming at them, that they're running around with their hair on fire, that they've got, they're just really overwhelmed. And at the same time, they feel like they're not doing enough. They feel like they're not making enough pastoral visits. They're not, uh, they're not engaging enough with the people in their congregation They are not responding to enough emails, whatever it is. Like they simultaneously are like, I'm running around with my hair on fire doing so much and I'm also not doing enough. And so part of the work of coaching is to just raise that awareness to say, huh, it sounds like you feel like you're doing way too much and you also feel like you're totally not doing enough, how can those two things be true at the same time? Yeah. Cause and like letting opposites. that kind of question just land. <laughs> yeah. It's like, huh, why don't you like sit with that for a minute? Exactly. Exactly. Because you know that you've asked an effective question in coaching when people need to take that pause. Oh yeah. No, we've had those moments. Like I know exactly where I'm like, all right, Crystal, I just need to like write that one down. I just like need a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because what's so fascinating about the human brain is that can it, it can hold completely contradictory thoughts at the same time. Yes. So, ha- and, ex- and exploring, oh, right, I think this and I also think this. Are these two things actually true for me? Do I want to believe both of these things? If so, why or why not? 
No, I think that's such a powerful thing. And even as you're sharing all of that, like I just know so many of my friends who are moms and in particular moms who work like they just I have shared like those very similar frustrations, whether it's about their parenting or balancing the parenting and work life. And so like I know your focus is with movement is with women in ministry, but I think it's just a broader theme in society as well right now. Oh, totally. The way that the people, the women that I work with will say, well, I can't be a good mom and a good pastor. I think that really can replicate itself in so many different facets of life where women are saying, well, I can't be a good engineer and be a good wife, or I can't be, I can't be an effective I don't know, um, government representative to the state of Virginia and be a good mom, right? That, that just random examples here. Yeah. (laughs) Just go with it. But, uh, that there's always that question, I think for women to say, well, can I be both? Can I, can I both fulfill these relational roles and these professional roles? And the way that our society is is not designed to support those things on so many structural levels and simultaneously recognizing those structural issues, how do I want to choose to think about my own lived experience? And so it's being able to hold that tension to say, patriarchy is real, parental leave is needed, affordable child care is needed. And simultaneously, how do I want to choose to show up in my ministry or at my job or, you know, in terms of advocating for policy change, like the the, the structural changes that are needed are always going to be enacted by individuals working together, but always starting with the individual first and recognizing what's in my control. What, how can I choose to think about this? What do I want to think and feel? And how is that going to impact not only my life experience, but those of the people around me as well? So you've shared like some of the particular questions that you ask already. So like, how do I want to think about this? What do I want to do? What is it within my control? So from there, like, is there a particular method or style of question that you like to use? And if so, how does that method work and why do you use it? Yeah, I love to ask what are called open-ended questions as opposed to closed questions. So closed questions are questions that require a yes-no response. So, uh, for example, like, are you fine today? Yes, yes I'm no. fine. <laughs> No, I'm not. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And so and that just shuts down the conversation, because once you respond with the yes or the no, then that's all there is. It's a binary response. You only have two options versus how are you doing today? I have no idea. That's an open ended question where I have no idea how you're going to respond because there's any number of things that you could say in response to that question. So the closed yes, no questions as a binary, I think can become a metaphor for a larger set of ideas about open-ended questions. Open-ended questions invite a whole open-ended set of responses in the same way that binaries function as, well, you're either this or that. You're either, you're either you know, black or white, straight or queer. You know, You pick your binary. But open-ended questions invite you into a spectrum of responses. Open-ended questions are just, for me, delightfully queer in that they're they're inviting you to think beyond the either-or. They're inviting you to think in terms of a, a rainbow or a spectrum that can be that can create far more curiosity and openness than the simple, well, it's either this or that. Yeah, I love that of thinking of questions as like delightfully queer or like queering the way that we think. There was an episode that was earlier a part of this series. Yeah, that just kind of really helped us expand our understanding of the word queer and how to think about scripture in that way. And so I love the idea of thinking of questions in that way, too. Questions are totally queer. 
I'm here for that. And like either or, that's hard. And I think even with a closed question, like you're setting up like what the expectation is going to be as well, that like you're either fine or not versus any other number of things. So it's it's open in so many ways. Yeah, the the more open-ended questions can be, the more exploratory they can be. And so there's just, there's so much more opportunity to deepen into awareness, to be, to be interrogating, is this what I want? Is this not what I want? Is this how I choose to show up in the world and why? And it's just so much more fun because you're able to hold your exploration with a kind of lightness versus Mm -hmm. the binary often gets into like a much heavier determinative kind of feeling. And the more, the more open you can be, the more curious and light you can be, the, I don't want to say the less seriously you take yourself because so much of the work that we do is super serious, but that there's a way to, to hold these questions so that things can, can crack open versus shut down. Yeah. And even as you're describing that, like I'm, you know, like getting this kind of feeling of like that it can be like a little bit more like playful or imaginative and the like and the power that comes, I think, with playfulness and imaginativeness and like creativity uh, to be able to let your mind go in different ways or to imagine other possibilities um, in a way that when you are like weighted down or or a little bit too grounded or like limited or structured that your brain just doesn't get there. Yeah, totally. So out of all of the questions that you ask, and I know that you've got, you know, a whole list of standard questions that you rotate through and that you have in your uh, in your in your toolbox to ask people, what's your favorite question to ask? Oh, my favorite question is totally why. Oh, well, then why is why your favorite? <laughs> I like to take folks through an exercise of what I call why times five. Ooh. So you ask yourself, ooh, yeah, it's super fun. So someone will say something like, oh, gosh, this guy at church is totally driving me crazy. And then I'll ask the question, oh, why? Why is this person driving you crazy. I mean, thankfully nobody has the power to drive you crazy because it's your thoughts about this person that are actually making you a little bit crazy, but that's that's a topic for another another example. So you might ask the question, well why? Why is this person driving you crazy? And then the person might say something like, well, I feel really uncomfortable when I don't know the answer. And then you might ask again, well why do you feel really uncomfortable when you don't know the answer? And it might be something like, well, I need people in my church to think that I'm smart. Mm. And then it might be, well, why do you need people in your church to think that you're smart? Well, I don't know as a young woman, if people are going to take me seriously. And then I might ask, well, they called you and you have the credentials to do what you're doing. So why do you think people don't take you seriously? And just like bringing in sort of like layer upon layer of why, because often like what's on the surface is a great starting place. And the more you ask why, like the more you get into the root of what we would call like a core thought, like typically it comes down to either I don't believe that I'm enough or I don't believe that I know what I'm doing. Like yeah. it, it often like comes down to something like I I don't feel secure in in my personhood or in my enoughness. Yeah, and like as you were working through that example, those that why chain there, I just like feel in my heart like with each which e- with each of those like hypothetical responses, like oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, like, oh, I feel that, like, I've been there, like, I've had that worry, I've, like, felt that too, and just as you get down deeper, then it's, like, then you can really have a more, like, serious conversation about what's going on. Right, because so, I I often find with the, with the women in ministry that I work with that there's so much fear 
around proving that you are that you are credentialed or that you are smart enough or that you are good enough to do the work that you've already been called to do. Yeah. And so often like I'm asking the why do you feel like you need to prove the thing that you've already been called to do? Like how would your ministry be different if you rest in the assurance that God has already placed this call on your heart? that you have already been called and claimed and are beloved. And if and when you step into that assurance, how can your ministry be different? Yeah. When and even just like simply thinking about like the amount of time that our brains spend wondering about that or fear fearing that or like leaning into that insecurity, like how you could use that time differently. Like that oh, time totally. and space in your brain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a professor, I used to say, I used to, I felt like I was always obligated to say there are no terrible questions as a way of encouraging class participation. But as a coach, I will be definitive in saying that there are terrible questions (laughs) for sure. So like a question like, why can't I figure this out is a dead end question. Yeah. Like there are legit terrible questions. That, okay. This is like an unexpected turn in the conversation, but I feel like we've got to go there now, like in this series about questions. So like, tell us, why do you, why do you think this is a terrible question of why can't I figure this out? Yeah. It's a question that assumes that you, that something is wrong. It's a question that assumes that like you are broken and, or you've messed this up and the only kinds of responses to a question like, why can't I figure this out? Are questions about you as a person. Like I, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, I don't have the resources. I'm not enough. And so these are what in coaching, I would call a dead end question because there are questions that are, are inherently assuming that Either there's not an answer or that it can't be figured out or something is inherently wrong with with you or the situation or whatever it is. And so there are what I would offer less less life-giving kinds of questions that aren't going to create the kind of answers that get you to where you want to go. Yeah. Well, and even in that, there's such... uh compassion and I think love for the person that you're trying to coach to be like no like you've got this in you like we can there is a way right so much of what I do in coaching is calling people into the highest version of themselves and holding belief for them until they're ready to do that work of believing in themselves like I Tell you exactly who you are every week as a called and claimed and beloved child of God until you're ready to rest in that assurance and model that for your congregation. Like that is the work that I do is holding that space because we all need that space. And women in ministry do that for their congregations all the time and yet are so deeply uncomfortable to do that for themselves. They're so willing to extend grace to other people. And are very good at it and really good at holding space for others. But it, when it comes to, to, to receiving that, it can be deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And so I'm doing that work for them that they are often doing for their congregations. Yeah. And as you share that, like I also, I mean, just the parallels that ripple out, you know, for women, for parents. I know, like there was this one time, um, when I was working with a therapist and she said something to me that I had literally said to a parishioner like two days before. And I said that and I was like, gosh, like I just told someone this the other day, but like, here you are telling it to me and it's making this whole difference for me. And I was like, do you ever have that? Like as a therapist that like you say something to someone and then like, but you also need to like hear it for yourself. And it, and with this particular therapist, it was maybe like the one time that she kind of like broke the fourth wall, so to speak. And she like went yep. into her own inner, like in reflection space, inner reflection. She was just like, yeah, yeah, I know. Sometimes it's that way. 
And then we like we got like right along with it. But that idea of like sometimes you just need someone else to say it to you so you can like hear it and and claim it and believe it. Oh, totally. And women especially are socialized to give. Women are socialized to be of service to other people and to take care of other people, often to the detriment of caring for themselves. And so women are socialized to be deeply uncomfortable with receiving that care themselves. To say, oh, yes, I too am worthy of receiving the same care that I so freely give to other people. And so there's a skill there in being willing to sit with that discomfort of receiving in the same way that they're so happy to give to others. Yeah. And I think I just like want to add to I I sometimes get insecure about the amount of times here on the All Places Together podcast that I say, God loves you wherever, whoever, however you are. Like, cause it's like several times per episode by the time it's all said and done. But I think that that core affirmation is like so important for people to hear that it's like, well, I believe it and I want you to believe it too. So we're just, I'm going to keep saying it. Yeah. I mean, so I'm just going to pull the lens back and be a total coach nerd for a second here that part of what you're doing is you are creating by continuing to affirm that over and over again, like you're creating new neural pathways for people because what you're doing is rewiring people's understanding of themselves, rewiring their self-concept in a world where they are bombarded all day, every day with ideas that they're not enough that they're not skinny enough, that they're not rich enough, that they're not smart enough, that they're not, that they're not any kind of enough. We're, we're bombarded with this all day, every day. And so for you to be holding that space for your people to say that you are, that I'll just use my language of called and claimed and beloved, like you are literally rewiring people's brains with an alternative set of ideas to the ways in which their brains are already wired. And so it's a, not only is it a deeply faithful thing to do, but it totally jives with neuroscience, which is super fun. I love that. Thank you. Like that is such a meaningful and powerful way to think about this. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Nerds. Here for it. I am a big time nerd as well. So we've kind of talked about God and the work of the Holy Spirit throughout this conversation, but I also want to intentionally ask, like, how do you see God at work through the questions that you ask? Yeah. So as a biblical scholar, I'm always pointing people to the way in which the people in the Bible were not at the center of the story in their own day. So let's just take the early church as an example. So the early church in the first century in the Mediterranean basin, which in this period is controlled by the Roman Empire, is not at the center of the story. So in the 21st century in the United States, which is a Christian dominant context, people are conditioned to think that the church is at the center of the story because that's what they see in the 21st century today, that Christianity is at the center, even though it's becoming increasingly secular in some ways, that Christianity is still the dominant religion in the U.S. And so the church is seen as being at the center of the story, which is totally different than the context in which the early church was born. Even though the New Testament tells the story of the church, These letters and gospels that were written in the first and second centuries were very much at the margins of that story. They were not at the center of the story of the first and second centuries. And so because of the way scripture is pointing us to the edges, pointing us to what is what is at the margins, what is what who who is being left out and why? I think there's so much invitation there than to be asking, okay, what is God calling us to see? Who is God calling us to relate to? And the ways in which women, I think, are often at the center of that conversation, because 
women for the history of the church have been on the margins of the story. Women have not been at the center of the story. And yet we have this tradition where women were the were important leaders in the early church. We had Phoebe the deacon and Junia the apostle. And yes, we also have these texts of women be silent in churches, but that's because they were speaking. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Which was in a in a p- even more patriarchal society than the one we have today, really dangerous for the early church. And so I think the way that God is operating in so many of these questions is to call us to, you know, what's, what is, what are the stories that are operating? Are those the stories we want to choose on purpose? And where is God calling us to see ourselves in relationship to those stories? Because God has a story for us. God has a story about how we are God's children. And God calls us into that relationship. and. Yet we are also constantly bombarded with other kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. And how are the questions that we're asking interrogating those stories or not? Are we accepting the stories that are being told about us as women? Or can we, through the questions that we ask, be invited into a different way of, of seeing ourselves, into a different way of understanding who we are as made in the image of God as women, just as much as men. Obviously that's an image that's still operating within the binary, which is less than useful. Right. But um, the, I mean, even just this question of how are women made in the image of God, like that, even up, even in and of itself is an unsettling question. Yeah. Because for we so live in many, a world in which is. we're told that, yeah, that that it's only it's only men that are created in that image. Never mind to say people who are non-binary or people that are operating outside of those traditional gender norms. And yeah, so the kinds of questions that we ask about who God is and and who God calls us to be, I think really do matter. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly in all of that. God creates each of us so uniquely and as a particular intersection and reflection of God's love and light and all of those things. And like how we can embody that and live into that in the world. So often here at All Places Together, we like to end with kind of a clear uh, biblical connection of some former fashion. We've talked about the Bible in a few different ways throughout this conversation. Um, so uh, my last question for you is that, uh, do you have a favorite question in the Bible, like something that someone asked Jesus or God? Um, it could be funny or profound, but there's lots of questions in the Bible. So what's your favorite? This is a really difficult question for a biblical scholar, for sure. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So if you have more than one, that's okay, too. Lots of grace here at APT. Excellent. I'm going to lean fully into that grace and I'm going to give you two. I love One it. is the the classic question of who do you say that I am, which Jesus asks of Peter when there's all of this discussion about is Jesus the one to come? Is he the Messiah? And this beautifully open-ended question of who do you say that I am and the invitation to respond to that. One that I think is really applicable for the work of APT and the work of coaching is a closed one, but I think is more is is actually legit my favorite one in the midst of this. So I don't like that it's closed. Fair enough. But I do, but I do really like this question, which comes uh, in Luke 24 which is the road to Emmaus story. And so it's after Jesus has been crucified. There are two disciples that are walking on the road to Emmaus. They encounter Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And it's only when they share a meal together in the and in the breaking of the bread that they are able to see Jesus for, for who he is. And there's a question that comes in the midst of that, which is from Luke 24, 32, which is, were not our hearts burning within us when he was opening the scriptures to us? And so that invites a yes, no response. But the way that the question is inviting 
someone to notice, where is my heart burning? How is scripture making this invitation to know and encounter Jesus? Though I'm rephrasing the the biblical question into a more open-ended version of it, but the way that we walk alongside of each other, like in that story, I think then becomes an invitation to notice where is the movement of Jesus along the road opening scripture to us? Where is the movement of the Holy Spirit that burns in our hearts as we encounter scripture? And just even getting curious about, is that happening? If it's happening, where is it? What is the, what, what are all the invitations into that? So that, I think that would have to be my favorite. I had to choose one. Yeah. And that's just such a beautiful question. Like the reflection that it invites and like, and I love that idea of imagining where throughout your life, wherever you find yourself, like, do you experience like that, that heart burning, like affirmation of like God's presence with you? Um, And that it might be in some really like unexpected or non-traditional like types of places or situation, but just that radical affirmation of like that God is with you in that place, even if it's not a church building. Yeah. Yeah. I so appreciate all of that uh, wisdom and energy that you have shared with us today, Crystal. If folks want to be able to get connected to your work, how can they find you? Where can they find you? So folks can find me on my website. If you go to www.crystalhallphd.com. So it's crystal with a C and hall like hallway, H-A-L-L-P-H-D. Dot com. It'll be in the show notes. So you can find me there. You can find information about how to work with me. Well, thank you again so much for uh, coming on the podcast today to delve into questions together, to share the type of questions that you ask and how you, in your, in your practice, invite women to explore God's love for them and God's call for them. It has been just a delight um, to be able to share this time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And blessings on the work that you do. It is so important. Thank you. A prayer for coming home to myself. God of grace, in the core of myself, I trust and believe that you made me with joy and delight. Yet there are so many voices that say I am not enough, that I am an imposter, and that I shouldn't can have a hard time hearing my own voice, let alone your voice, amid those other voices. Grant me courage to embrace the questions that will set loose my passion and my trust in myself. Surround me with love as I tend to the hurts that I can carry and heal. Help me come home to myself and your love in me. Then when I'm ready, show me the way to share that love with the world. Amen. Thank you for joining us at All Places Together. We hope you experienced God's love for you and the world in today's episode. Since we've recorded with Crystal, she has a new freebie on her website that she wants y'all to know about. 
It's called 10 Tips for Preaching When the Bible Says... I know that her insights as a Bible scholar and a coach will be sure to help anyone who is preaching or wanting to understand the Bible more deeply. I'll link the way you can get there in the show notes. Easter is now less than a month away, and I'm excited to welcome you all to Zoom worship with All Places Together for Easter on Monday, April 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You may be a little bit curious about why we're gathering on a Monday night for Easter worship rather than on the traditional Sunday morning time slot. Many of the APT community have regular Sunday morning commitments, whether that's work, kids, or caretaking for their parents. Plus, I know that for many millennials, Easter may mean traveling to be with family and doing family, faith, and traditional things. So APT chooses to intentionally gather on Monday night so that more of us can be together. Anyone is welcome to join. There's a sign-up sheet available on social media so that you can click that link and get to the sign-up sheet so you can get the Zoom link. If you're not sure about communion, if you've never taken it before, it's okay. You're welcome to come and be with us for a time of prayer and reflection. And feel free to let me know if you have any questions about the worship service. Thank you to our mission partners, the Virginia Synod and the ELCA. Being church together is so important. I also want to say thank you to all of those who give to empower the ongoing work of All Places Together. If you'd like to financially support APT, you can go to our website, allplacestogether.org. Scroll to the bottom where it says Give Now. Click that button and you'll be redirected to our giving platform. Even small one-time gifts of $5 or $10 or monthly gifts of the same amount add up to make a big difference. And if you'd like to be able to give a gift in a different way, whether a direct deposit from your bank or even a gift of stock, let me know and I can help you figure out how to make that generous gift possible. We know that it can be hard to give financially, and we celebrate all of the ways that you share the stories of all places together with the people in your life and engage with the APT community throughout the week. I want to say thank you to everyone who keeps showing up on our social media platforms, on Instagram and Facebook, and goodness, even people who are still showing up on TikTok, even though I'm not as active there. The way that you answer questions, share posts, and comment on what we're posting helps other people to find us and to get a sense about what this community is like. And as always, your word of mouth recommendations to family and friends who you think would enjoy the podcast get more people to us than any other way. So as folks are maybe driving for for spring breaks, I hope you'll consider recommending APT to join them in the car. Until next time, remember that God is with you and God loves you wherever, whoever, and however you are.